Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. I have some podcast business to discuss. As I have mentioned a time or two over the past couple of years, I'm working through my bachelor's degree, and as I'm approaching my final and busiest term, I am already feeling the pinch of available time to do side projects. In the near future, Drew Sebastini will become the host of the show, which will be done temporarily to make sure it's a good fit for him. Presuming that my workload goes the direction that I'm anticipating it, he'll be host formally going forward. While I'll take a bit of leave of absence from the podcast and will contribute narrations here and there, just like I did in the beginning. I wouldn't mind returning as an editor, but I'd like to not request a responsibility that I'm uncertain if I'll be able to deliver on. Following the completion of my bachelor's degree, I'll be faced with the choice of keeping the job that I have now and returning to school for my master's or accepting a job offer. I'm working on information security, and InfoSec people are in very high demand right now and for the foreseeable future. Either of those choices are likely going to come with additional responsibilities and workloads than what I have right now in my life. So keeping all of that in mind, I wanted to replace myself now, on my terms, instead of doing it out of desperation when I started missing shows every few weeks. As this isn't quite my fare-thee-well episode just yet, I'll be drumming up some parting thoughts for that, which might be in weeks or might be months. We're not quite clear on those details just yet. So, stay tuned. You'll have me for a little bit longer. But now, it's time for some stories. Children of the Night, it is time to hear from Donald Jacob Eichtflucht 
who lives on neither coast of the United States, but mostly in a haunted memory palace of his own design. His short fiction has appeared in numerous print and online venues, including Sirsova Magazine and Flame Tree Publishing's Murder Mayhem Anthology. He strives to write what he calls haiku fiction, stories that are small in scope, but big in impact. If you enjoy S.W. Vampire, let him know at his blog, haikufiction.blogspot.com, or via Twitter at haikufictiondju. Links to both will be in the show notes. Listen with me to Donald Jacob Eichflux, S.W. Vampire, ISO Drinking Companion, originally appearing in Hunger Magazine, October 2011. Frost white, beneath the surface flows, the pulse of life. Hey, look into my eyes. Adric's gaze snapped up to the woman's eyes, gray and weak behind her glasses. He looked down at the card she had filled out for the speed dating service. Carol, 27, software engineer. <laughs> That's better. You men are all alike. You only think about one thing. <sighs> I don't know why I even come to these things. It had not been her breasts he'd been staring at, but there was no need to tell her so. He kept reminding himself that a pleasure postponed was a pleasure increased. The power games only made the blood sweeter. Or so his sire had taught him. The last few centuries, he had started to have his doubts. So, why do you come to these things? Adric asked. For all her protests, Carol had dressed for men to look at her. Apparently men were not the only ones who thought of only one thing. Her tight-ribbed sweater was light-colored and showed her dark brassiere underneath. The v-neck displayed plenty of... Decolletage. She had pulled her long auburn hair off a graceful alabaster neck. The warm pulse of her jugular so close he could almost... He almost licked his lips. But no, that might frighten the prey. He looked away at the room hosting the event. A masterful exercise in faux elegance. Dark furniture, clearly veneer plated candlesticks and lamps, white draperies and table linens, a not-quite-convincing imitation of silk. Twenty or so tables arranged in a circle. White chrysanthemums everywhere. Carol sighed in answer to Adric's question. <sighs> I guess I'm still a romantic at heart. I keep hoping, in spite of everything, that I'll make a connection, you know? <laughs> a romantic. He wondered if she knew the weight of history behind the word. 
its power evoking the mystery, the light, the darkness of Rome, the eternal city. How glibly the word romantic slid off the tongue. How this dark new age debased the eternal. Yes, I know. She leaned forward, displaying more of the cleavage she claimed she did not want stared at. You have a very interesting accent. Where are you from? Adric hesitated before answering. I've lived many places, but my family is from Eastern Europe. The Balkans. Really? My college roommate was from Lithuania. She laid a hand on his arm. Maybe a connection's possible after all. He shivered at her touch, at her ignorance. She had misunderstood, of course. Ugh, I hadn't realized it was so cold in here. You're like ice. Her gray eyes studied him hungrily, suggesting that she had ideas for how she might warm him. Adric realized at that moment that he had lost the bet he had made with Vlad ages ago. The human race was getting stupider as the centuries passed. They had no idea what he was anymore. No idea about vampires at all. By the ancients, they even wrote vampire romance novels. As if Count Chocula's serial had not been enough. Being a wolf was no fun if the sheep simply jumped into your mouth. And after the centuries, the hunt was the only thing to live for. Much more of Carol, and he would stake himself. The bell sounded at last. The moderator's too cheery voice rang out from somewhere behind the flowers. That's eight minutes, people. Ladies, stay where you are. Guys, move on to your next date. The short night drives the beast onward. Red hunger. Oh, and I never drink wine. Bunny, 23, retail clerk. Long black hair with red highlights done in pigtails. Black lipstick, black nails. Black dress with white petticoats. A goth girl with dimples who stank of bubblegum. Adric hated dimples. Nor do I. She smiled. I'm a vegetarian. A real one. A vegan. Not one of those posers. Adric tried not to scream. I understand. I haven't touched a drop of milk since I was a child. Bunny's laugh was like fingernails scraping the inside of a coffin. Oh, I knew when I saw you that you were the one. Did you know that you have a very unusual aura? You must have an old soul. Or perhaps several young ones. In my refrigerator, saved for later. The girl looked confused, but only for a moment. She prattled on, the faint hint of a thought dispersed by her effervescent stupidity. Adric contemplated strangling her. Mm, too easy. But perhaps fun. She caught him looking at his hands. Are you an artist? An interesting question. 
His human lovers had certainly considered him an artist with both pain and pleasure. His human enemies had known him as a master of pain. And how he had relished his first kills. The memories elicited a wry smile. After a fashion. I knew it! I can always tell! She grinned wide. Adric had not come to this event tonight to watch the cattle chew its gum. I'm a very good judge of people. Let me see your palm. Amused, he held it out to her. She studied the lines for a long moment, snapping her gum in an imperfect semblance of concentration. Hmm. That's weird. Oh? I've never seen such a short lifeline before. If I didn't know better, I'd say you died years ago. Funny. The dimples returned. The black in her hair had to be dye as well as the red. Well, your love line is very long. Your palm is telling me a new romantic interest is about to enter your life. She gave him a wink. Ugh, ancients, where was that bell? Full moon, across the wasted field, she comes. Adric sensed her before he saw her. A weightiness seated in the chair opposite him. A presence. He looked, and in looking fell into the obsidian abyss of her eyes. She let him burn in her gaze for an eternity, and then released him with a smirk. He looked away. She was a vampire, and a powerful one at that. Adric tried to regain his composure by studying her card. Lily, none of your damned business. Collections. He grinned, tried not to show Fang. Collections. She might as well have said she worked in a blood bank. The white skin, midnight dark hair... Eyes like the sky during an eclipse. Lips the color of bruised skin. It was impossible. But there was no other explanation for what he felt. She was an ancient, or he was fresh from the grave. She studied him as he put it together. Time itself stabbed into him through her eyes. The corners of her mouth just hinted at a mocking grin. Do you come here often sounds trite, but in this instance, apropos. Her voice was a caress of fingernails up his spine. An ancient. Here. He opened his mouth, but no sound came out. I suppose speed dating is better than a personal ad. Single white vampire in search of victim. Still, it does savor of a certain desperation. He nodded, letting her words, her scent, her very being penetrate him, enthrall him. We females have it somewhat easier. Her smile widened, a hint of teeth. To let one's prey think it is the hunter, only to realize the truth too late. Exquisite. 
It can stave off the ennui for many years, but not forever. Adric found his tongue at last. Women do love their foreplay. A look he could not read, replaced by her ironic smile. Perhaps, yes. I do not believe you've answered my question. He gave a curt nod. She was right, of course. About everything. I do. Come here often. A wider smile. More than a hint of fang. Why? Why do you, Adric Kalinkovic, come here so often? She knew him. She knew him completely, from the second their eyes had locked. He was not sure that he liked being known so completely, but he could not fight the power of an ancient. He growled his answer. You know why. She licked her lips. Yes, but I want to hear you say it. He swallowed. Because the hunt is no fun unless one finds worthy prey. His voice shrank to but a whisper. Because a good hunt is the only thing that keeps the darkness at bay. <laughs> Edo ergo sum. Her laugh was all silver and moonlight. I feed, therefore I am. She touched his face. Warmth flowing from her into him. We are children of the night, you and I. We dance to the music of blood and famine and death. Let me restore desire again to your lost soul. His eyes glowed as her vision filled him. A vision not of single kills, but of a new era of devastation. A vision of men mourning their lovers and mothers weeping for their babes. The stench of decay in the gutters. Darkness like a black mist in the street, dealing death to whomever it touched. Blood gushing like a fountain. The curse of Lilith wreaking vengeance on the children of Eve. The bell sounded. It did not matter. He had found what he was looking for, and so much more a reason to continue his undead existence. He looked at the room around them. It would start tonight. He took Lily's hand, and they rose together. Midnight tolls, amid the winter chrysanthemums, stained red.
That was Donald Jacob Eichflux S.W. Vampire ISO Drinking Companion as read by Joe Samarco. Joe Samarco is U.S. born. He has a passion for audio engineering and voiceover work and has since he was a young child. His father was a DJ and always encouraged his growth in the field. He hopes to make a professional career out of voiceover work in the animation or video game industry. To date, he has voiced over 15 different short stories on Tales to Terrify and hopes to do many more. For any who are interested in reaching out to him, he is on LinkedIn and Facebook and will happily respond to any requests or messages. Thank you, Joe. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Our second story for the night is a classic. Author of Haunted Orchard, Richard Le Gallienne, was an English author and poet. Born Richard Thomas Gallienne in Liverpool, England, to a middle-class family, he attended the then all-boys public school Liverpool College. After leaving school, he changed his name to Le Gallienne and started working in an accountant's office in London. He soon abandoned this job to become a professional writer with ambitions of being a poet. The book My Lady's Sonnets appeared in 1887. Though he published numerous poems and articles, he is mostly remembered as the father of the British-American actress Eva Le Gallienne. Richard died in 1947 in Menton, France, where he is buried. Listen with me to Richard Le Gallienne's Haunted Orchard.
spring was once more in the world. As she sang to herself in the faraway woodlands, her voice reached even the ears of the city, weary with the long winter. Daffodils flowered at the entrance to the subway. Furniture-removing vans blocked the side streets. Children clustered like blossoms on the doorsteps. The open cars were running, and the cry of the cash-clow man was once more heard in the land. Yes, it was the spring, and the city dreamed wistfully of lilacs, and the dewy piping of birds and gnarled old apple trees, of dogwood lighting up with sudden silver the thickening woods, of water plants unfolding their glossy scrolls and pools of morning freshness. On Sunday mornings, the outbound trains were thronged with eager pilgrims, hastening out of the city to behold once more the ancient marvel of the spring. And, on Sunday evenings, the railway termini were a flower with banners of blossom from rifled woodland, an orchard carried in the hands of the returning pilgrims, whose eyes still shone with the spring magic, and whose ears still sang the fairy music. And as I beheld these signs of the vernal equinox, I knew that I, too, must follow the music, forsake a while the beautiful siren we call the city, and in the green silences meet once more my sweetheart, solitude. As the train drew out of the Grand Central, I hummed to myself, I've a neater, sweeter maiden in a greener, cleaner land. And so I said goodbye to the city, and went forth with beating heart to meet the spring. I had been told of an almost forgotten corner of the south coast of Connecticut, where the spring and I could live in an inviolate loneliness. A place uninhabited, save for birds and blossoms, woods and thick grass, and an occasional silent farmer, and pervaded by the breath and shimmer of the sound. Nor had rumor lied, for when the train set me down at my destination, I stepped out into the most wonderful green hush, a leafy Sabbath silence through which the very train, as it went farther on its way, seemed to steal as noiselessly as possible for fear of breaking the spell. After a winter in the town— to be dropped thus suddenly into the intense quiet of the countryside makes an almost ghostly impression upon one, as of an enchanted silence, a silence that listens and watches, but never speaks, finger on lip. There is a spectral quality about everything upon which the eye falls. The woods like great green clouds, the wayside flowers, the still farmhouses— half lost in orchard bloom. All seem to exist in a dream. Everything is so still, everything so supernaturally green. Nothing moves or talks, except the gentle susurrus of the spring wind swaying the young buds high up in the quiet sky, or a bird now and again, or a little brook singing softly to itself among the crowding rushes. Though from the houses one notes here and there, there are evidently human inhabitants of this green silence. None are to be seen. 
I have often wondered where the country folk hide themselves, as I have walked hour after hour, past farm and croft and lonely dooryards, and never caught sight of a human face. If you should want to ask the way, a farmer is as shy as a squirrel, and if you knock at a farmhouse door, all is as silent as a rabbit warren. As I walked along in the enchanted stillness, I came at length to a quaint old farmhouse, old colonial in its architecture, embowered in white lilacs and surrounded by an orchard of ancient apple trees which cast a rich shade on the deep spring grass. The orchard had the impressiveness of those old religious groves dedicated to the strange worship of sylvan gods, gods to be found now only in Horus or Catullus, and in the hearts of young poets to whom the beautiful antique Latin is still dear. The old house seemed already the abode of solitude. As I lifted the latch on the white gate and walked across the forgotten grass and up onto the veranda already festooned with wisteria, and I looked into the window, I saw solitude sitting by an old piano on which no composer later than Bach had ever been played. In other words, the house was empty and going round to the back, where old barns and stables leaned together as if falling asleep, I found a broken pane, and so climbed in and walked through the echoing rooms. The house was very lonely. Evidently, no one had lived in it for a long time. Yet it was all ready for some occupant, for whom it seemed to be waiting. Quaint old four-poster bedsteads stood in three rooms. Dimity curtains and spotless linen, old oak chests and mahogany presses, and, opening drawers and Chippendale sideboards, I came upon beautiful, frail, old silver and exquisite china that set me thinking of a beautiful grandmother of mine, made out of old lace and laughing wrinkles and mischievous old blue eyes. There was one room that particularly interested me, a tiny bedroom all white, and at the window the red roses were already in bud. But what caught my eye with peculiar sympathy was a small bookcase, in which were some twenty or thirty volumes, wearing the same forgotten expression. Forgotten, and yet cared for, which lay like a kind of memorial charm upon everything in the old house. Yes, everything seemed forgotten, and yet everything, curiously, even religiously, remembered. I took out book after book from the shelves. Once or twice flowers fell out from the pages, and I caught sight of a delicate handwriting here and there, and frail markings. It was evidently the little intimate library of a young girl. What surprised me most was to find that quite half the books were in French. French poets and French romancers. A charming, very rare edition of Ronsard. A beautifully printed edition of Alfred de Musset. And a copy of Théophile Gautier's Mademoiselle de Montpain. How did these exotic books come to be there alone in a deserted New England farmhouse? This question was to be answered later, 
in a strange way. Meanwhile, I had fallen in love with the sad, old, silent place, and as I closed the white gate and was once more on the road, I looked about for someone who could tell me whether or not this house of ghosts might be rented for the summer by a comparatively living man. I was referred to a fine old New England farmhouse, shining white through the trees a quarter of a mile away. There I met an ancient couple, a typical New England farmer and his wife. The old man, lean, chin-bearded, with keen gray eyes, flickering occasionally with a shrewd humor. The old lady with the kindly old face of the withered apple type, and ruddy. They were evidently prosperous people, but their minds, for some reason I could not at all the moment divine, seemed to be divided between their New England desire to drive a hard bargain and their disinclination to let the house at all. Over and over again they spoke of the loneliness of the place. They feared I would find it very lonely. No one had lived in it for a long time, and so on. It seemed to me that afterwards I understood their curious hesitation, but at the moment only regarded it as a part of the circuitous New England method of bargaining. At all events, the rent I offered finally overcame their disinclination, whatever its cause, and so I came into possession, for four months, of that silent old house, with the white lilacs and the drowsy barns and the old piano and the strange orchard. And, as the summer came on, and the year changed its name from May to June, I used to lie under the apple trees in the afternoons, dreamingly reading some old book, and through half-sleepy eyelids watching the silken shimmer of the sound. I had lived in the old house for about a month, when one afternoon a strange thing happened to me. I remember the date well. It was the afternoon of Tuesday, June 13th. I was reading, or rather dipping here and there, in Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy. As I read, I remember that little unripe apple, with a petal or two of blossom still clinging to it, fell upon the old yellow page. Then I suppose I must have fallen into a dream— though it seemed to me that both my eyes and my ears were wide open, for I suddenly became aware of a beautiful young voice singing very softly somewhere among the leaves. The singing was very frail, almost imperceptible, as though it came out of the air. It came and went fitfully, like the elusive fragrance of sweetbriar, as though a girl was walking to and fro, dreamily humming to herself in the still afternoon. Yet there was no one to be seen. The orchard had never seemed more lonely. And another fact that struck me as strange was that the words that floated to me out of the aerial music were French, half-sad, half-gay snatches of some long-dead singer of old France. I looked about for the origin of the sweet sounds, but in vain. Could it be the birds that were singing in French in this strange orchard? Presently the voice seemed to come quite close to me, 
so near that it might have been the voice of a dryad singing to me out of the tree against which I was leaning. And this time I distinctly caught the words of the sad little song. Chante, Rosignol, chante, toi qui es le cugue, tu es le cure rire, moi j'ai le te pleurer. But though the voice was at my shoulder, I could see no one. And then the singing stopped with what sounded like a sob. And a moment or two later, I seemed to hear a sound of sobbing far down the orchard. Then there followed silence, and I was left to ponder on the strange occurrence. Naturally, I decided that it was just a daydream between sleeping and waking over the pages of an old book. Yet, when the next day, and the day after, the invisible singer was in the orchard again, I could not be satisfied with such matter-of-fact explanation. À la claire fontaine went the voice to and fro through the thick orchard boughs. Mon allant promener, j'ai trouvé le si belle que je me suis béné. Il y a longtemps que je t'aime, jamais je ne t'oublierai. It was certainly uncanny to hear that voice going to and fro the orchard. There, somewhere, amid the bright sun-dazzled boughs, yet not a human creature to be seen, not another house even within half a mile. The most materialistic mind could hardly but conclude that here was something not dreamed of in our philosophy. It seemed to me that the only reasonable explanation was the entirely irrational one, that my orchard was haunted, haunted by some beautiful young spirit with some sorrow of lost joy that would not let her sleep quietly in her grave. And next day I had a cautious confirmation of my theory. Once more I was lying under my favorite apple tree, half reading and half watching the sound, lulled into a dream by the whir of insects and the spices called up from the earth by the hot sun. As I bent over the page, I suddenly had the startling impression that someone was leaning over my shoulder and reading with me, and that a girl's long hair was falling over me down on to the page. The book was the ronsard I had found in the little bedroom. I turned, but again there was nothing there. Yet this time I knew that I had not been dreaming, and I cried out, Poor child, tell me of your grief, that I may help your sorrowing heart to rest. But of course there was no answer. Yet that night I dreamed a strange dream. I thought I was in the orchard again in the afternoon, and once again heard the strange singing. But this time, as I looked up, the singer was no longer invisible. Coming toward me was a young girl with wonderful blue eyes, filled with tears, and gold hair that fell to her waist. She wore a straight white robe that might have been a shroud or a bridal dress. She appeared not to see me, though she came directly to the tree where I was sitting, 
And there she knelt and buried her face in the grass and sobbed as if her heart would break. Her long hair fell over her like a mantle, and in my dream I stroked it pityingly and murmured words of comfort for a sorrow I did not understand. Then I woke suddenly, as one does from dreams. The moon was shining brightly into the room. Rising from my bed, I looked out into the orchard. It was almost as bright as day. I could plainly see the tree of which I had been dreaming. And then a fantastic notion possessed me. Slipping on my clothes, I went out into one of the old barns and found a spade. Then I went to the tree where I had seen the girl weeping in my dream and dug down at its foot. I had dug little more than a foot when my spade struck some hard substance, and in a few more moments I had uncovered and exhumed a small box, which, on examination, proved to be one of those pretty, old-fashioned Chippendale workboxes used by our grandmothers to keep their thimbles and needles in, their reels of cotton and skeins of silk. After smoothing down the little grave in which I had found it, I carried the box into the house, and under the lamplight examined its contents. Then at once I understood why that sad young spirit went to and fro the orchard singing those little French songs. For the treasure trove I had found under the apple tree the buried treasure of an unquiet, suffering soul, proved to be a number of love letters written mostly in French, and a very picturesque hand, letters, too, written but some five or six years before. Perhaps I should not have read them, yet I read them with such reverence for the beautiful, impassioned love that animated them, and literally made them smell sweet and blossom in the dust, that I felt I had the sanction of the dead to make myself the confidant of their story. Among the letters were little songs, two of which I had heard the strange young voice singing in the orchard. And, of course... There were many withered flowers, and such like remembrances of bygone rapture. Not that night could I make out all the story, though it was not difficult to define its essential tragedy, and later on a gossip in the neighborhood and a headstone in the churchyard told me the rest. The unquiet young soul that had sung so wistfully to and fro the orchard was my landlord's daughter. She was the only child of her parents, a beautiful, willful girl, exotically unlike those from whom she was sprung and among whom she lived with the disdainful air of exile. She was, as a child, a little creature of fairy fancies and as she grew up it was plain to her father and mother that she had come from another world than theirs. To them she seemed like a child in an old fairy tale strangely found on his hearth by some shepherd as he returns from the fields at evening, 
a little fairy girl swaddled in fine linen and dowered with a mysterious bag of gold. Soon she developed delicate spiritual needs to which her simple parents were strangers. From long truancies in the woods, she would come home laden with mysterious flowers, and soon she came to ask for books and pictures and music, of which the poor souls that had given her birth had never heard. Finally she had her way and went to study at a certain fashionable college, and there the brief romance of her life began. There she met a romantic young Frenchman who had read Ronsard to her and written her those picturesque letters I had found in the old mahogany workbox. And after a while the young Frenchman had gone back to France, and the letters had ceased. Month by month went by, and at length one day, as she sat wistful at the window, looking out at the foolish sunlit road, a message came. He was dead. That headstone in the village churchyard tells the rest. She was very young to die, scarcely nineteen years. And the dead who have died young, with all their hopes and dreams still like unfolded buds within their hearts, do not rest so quietly in the grave as those who have gone through the long day from morning until evening, and are only too glad to sleep. Next day I took the little box to a quiet corner of the orchard, and made a little pyre of fragrant boughs. For so I interpreted the wish of that young, unquiet spirit, and the beautiful words are now safe, taken up again into the aerial spaces from which they came. But since then the birds sing no more little French songs in my old orchard. That was Richard Le Gallien's Haunted Orchard as read by our own Drew Sebastini. Writer and designer, editor and inventor, brewer and narrator, Drew's been called a lot of things in his career, some nicer than others. By day he spins stories with words and pictures as an advertising copywriter and creative director. But by the light of the moon, he can be found weaving tales for sound and screen and alchemizing bubbly brews with hops and barley. He lives in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada. Discover more about Drew at www.idrewthis.ca. Link will be in the show notes. Thank you, Drew. That will be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show was produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. 
Website design by Josh Lightsey and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 license. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.